0: hope each one of you had a great Thanksgiving. While you're at your Thanksgiving, who had more turkey than you should have? I did. Who had more dessert? Like probably pumpkin pie or pecan pie. Those are my favorites. I definitely had more than I should have. Who watched football? Hopefully everyone. It's God's sport. Raise your hand if you watched a movie over the break. I didn't actually. But I do love movies. Did I do that? Oh, okay. I love movies. And the ones that draw me in the most are the ones that have a really intriguing plot. There's a good guy. There's a bad guy. There's some tragedy. Something goes wrong. There's a couple plot twists. There's rising action. There's a climax. There's resolution. Those are the stories That are fascinating to me and, and I think they're fascinating to a lot of people because somewhere within that, that resonates within us. And we see that movie and we see what's going on and we feel similarly to what's going on there. And tonight, it is my goal to show you that scripture, that God's inspired word compiled by at least 35 human authors, all under the inspiration of one author, the Holy Spirit written over the course of 1,500 years, is by far the greatest, most incredible story ever composed. It makes the works of Christopher Nolan and Steven Spielberg look like child's play. It makes them look like a candle next to the sun. And this book, this story contained within this book, is not some grand fairy tale with abstract People and distant characters and a bunch of rules that we're now supposed to follow. But it is uniquely personal to us. And it is uniquely intentional because it is made by a personal and an intentional God. And this story has to do with you and me, even tonight, right here. 2023, November 29th, Redeemer students. It affects us. This is the story of redemption. And in light of this Christmas season, I thought it fitting to embark on a series to walk through the story of redemption through a four-week series on Advent. So Advent just means arrival. And the whole purpose of Advent is, like I said in the prayer right before this, is to prepare our hearts to focus on the Lord. Instead of the period of days leading up to Christmas, focusing on gift-giving, Christmas cookies, family games, and a break from school, it is good for us to focus on the arrival of the person of Jesus. And as we do this, I pray that your hearts will be made alive as to why Jesus' arrival is such good news to you and to me, even today. The last time we were together, two weeks ago now, we discussed the need. That was the title of my sermon. And we studied Genesis chapter 6 verses 5 through 8 and we saw how wicked the people on earth were and are today. And we saw that sin is pervasive. It, in effect, it affects every part of us. And it's also personal because it isn't just breaking a distant law a random obligation, but it is affecting a personal God. Our sin separates us from God and it puts us in such a place that we need him to provide a solution. We need Him. We're incapable of doing it ourselves. And tonight we'll be looking at the next theme in the story of redemption. We're going to be wading through the pages of this book to find the promised seed. If you're taking notes, that's my title, the promised seed. We're going to look at four different, pa- four different places, four passages, where we see God's hand crafting this incredible mind-blowing, long-term, huge-scale story of redemption. Before we begin, let's pray. Lord, be with us as we study your word. We need help, God, because without it, your word seems like a list of rules, seems like a list of obligations, but by your spirit, we can see that it is love moved towards us and that you, are a kind and gracious God who has given all for our sake, and we want to honor you. Help us to do that tonight in the way that we listen to your word, in the way that our hearts are soft and ready to receive it. Be with us, in Jesus' name, amen. Please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And though this is on page 2 of most of your Bibles, it's on page 2 of my Bible, I figured... It's still good to summarize a little bit of what's happened before we reach Genesis 3. God created the whole world, including a man named Adam and a woman named Eve. They lived in perfect communion with God. They enjoyed his presence and they delighted in his beauty and the beauty of his creation and the beauty of him. And they lived that way until they committed the first sin in the world, which is referred to as the fall. And if you look right above number three in your Bibles, there's probably a little title that says the fall. They sinned by trying to get for themselves that which God in his infinite wisdom did not provide to them. They listened to the attractive and slippery voice of the serpent instead of the clear and kind voice of God. And right after their sin, God in his perfect justice confronts them. Let's read from verse 9 and see this encounter. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, well, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God addresses the woman and says, What is this that you have done? And the woman likewise replied, The serpent, he deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, hatred between you, serpent, And the woman between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So here's a summary. Satan, the serpent, deceived. But God and Adam and Eve sinned. They clearly screwed up. And yet, despite their phony defenses of, well, she made me do it or he told me to do it. And so I did it. God actually rules in their favor. Notice that he speaks to the serpent. After Adam and Eve sinned, he talks to the snake. He doesn't talk to them. And he says to the serpent that he is cursed. He will be the lowest of the low. And even though if you were to continue this passage in verses 16 and 17, he does pronounce a curse upon the man and the woman. In verse 15, he gives a promise. He gives a great promise. God predicts. Point number one, the seed predicted. God predicts right here in Genesis 3.15 that a descendant of the woman, the offspring, the seed of Eve, would one day bruise or more literally crush the head of the offspring of the serpent. There's going to be a battle. There will be enmity, hatred, fighting between them. And the seed of evil will endure pain, but the seed of Satan will be crushed destroyed. And this was good news for Adam and Eve. They had just screwed up beyond all possible imagination. And if you think about it, they literally could not have done a worse job. (laughs) They failed miserably, as worse as it possibly gets. But God doesn't annihilate them. Instead, he promises to deliver them through their offspring. This does pose a problem for us if we think critically about this, because if God is infinitely just, then a sin against an infinite God would require infinite payment, infinite punishment, which means eternal condemnation in hell. And making Adam sweat, that's what verse 16 and 17 says, to earn food and Eve to endure pain when she gives birth, seems like a much lighter sentence than eternal condemnation. Something doesn't add up. Well, if you're looking at your Bible, look across at verse 21 of chapter 3. It says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Following the first sin, we see God tangibly moving to cover his people. They were naked, but he covers them. And if we look at that statement a little more closely, what do we realize? is that the only way they can be covered with a skin is if God killed an animal and covered them with the skin of the animal. God introduces death right here into the world because the wages of sin is always death. Sin must always be paid for by death. But instead of demanding Adam and Eve's lives for their sin, God offered a substitute. Does that sound familiar? You see, a lot of people assume that the whole Old Testament is just law and rules. And that, that's why we don't really need to study it all that much. Like, sure, it can be there, but we're not really going to focus on it. The good stuff shows up when we read about Jesus and the Gospels and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. But student, do you see that the Gospel is right here? Immediately following the sin of humans, God moves. God moves and extends goodness and loving kindness towards them. And we need to hear this reminder. And some of you may need to hear it particularly. That where your sin in your life abounds, where you feel that there's no way beyond it, there's no way out of it. God's grace has abounded all the more. It has overcome, overwhelmed your sin. And where our sin leaves us naked, God provides covering. He provides clothing. Praise the Lord. For that truth that we see even on page two of the Bible. But looking back at our passage, it's clear that the skins of an animal don't solve the root problem. They address it, but don't solve it. And this is a picture to point us forward, forward toward the seed, the offspring. But what happens immediately following Genesis 3 is Genesis 4. Cain kills Abel. That's not in the right direction. What follows Genesis 4 is Genesis 5. A long list of people who lived for hundreds and hundreds of years and all died. What follows Genesis 5 is Genesis 6, which we studied last week, is all about how wicked the people on the earth are. This does not seem like we're going in the right direction. Eve's child was supposed to be the deliverer, the one to crush the serpent's head. And we must imagine these people here were beginning to feel that God had forgotten his promise. That God had left them out that he had completely missed the opportunity and this continues this pattern really all the way until genesis 15 which is where i want you to turn to next genesis 15 point number two the seed confirmed the seed confirmed and so though you only turned a few pages this passage takes place about 1500 years later and yet we see the Lord's hand again. God reminds us that he has not forgotten his promise. The statement that he made would not just be a sentiment of wishful thinking of, well, I hope the good guys, Adam and Eve, can beat the bad guy, the serpent. Rather, Genesis 15 reveals that God did in fact mean what he said in the garden. And he had not forgotten his people. In a little more context before we read this. Out of the line of Adam and Eve... Many generations down the road, in Genesis 12, God calls a man named Abram. Later changes the name to Abraham. Many of you have heard this. If I mix it up, no, it's the same person. He calls Abraham, he tells him, he will become the father of a great nation. All the world will be blessed through him. And God tells Abraham to leave his homeland, to live as an exile. And he does. He follows God's commands. And he moves where he's at. And he follows what the Lord says. symbolic Christian life. We live as exiles. We follow God's will, even when it doesn't necessarily make sense to us. But the problem that we have in chapter 15 is that though he's old, Abraham is 90 years old, likely, when he's hearing this address, Abraham doesn't have a son. And God promised, Abraham, out of you, I will make a great nation. But how can Abraham father a great nation if he's never even fathered one kid? He needs help. He needs God to work on his behalf. This is the context that we enter in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, God, And a member of my household, not even my own son, will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, for your very own son, Hebrew seed, shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. He brought Abram outside. And he says, look towards the heavens and number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him. As righteousness. God's doubling down. God, and he's not just doubling down on the fact that Abraham will be the father of many nations, of many peoples. But he's doubling down on the promise from Genesis chapter 3. God confirms that there will be a promised seed. And now that we see that this seed will not just bless one person, but it will bless a great nation. And not just a great nation, but all the families of the earth, according to Genesis 12.3. And the truth is that we need to be reminded of promises like this. And I don't know the circumstances that you are walking into this room tonight with. But I, like you, have been in times of my life where I've looked at a trial, at an obstacle, at a struggle. Something that is ahead of me that I don't see past. I can't see how this is actually going to work. I can't see how God could actually make this happen. But we need to remind ourselves that the God that we pray to performs impossibilities. How often do we cease praying for something because it hasn't been granted after 20 minutes? How often do we forget to pray about someone after one day? How often do we lose hope when we're told no once or twice? These are all kinds of things that, that can deflate our hope in God, that God is actually out there, that God is actually working, that God is actually purposeful in our lives. But when we're discouraged, what are we called to do? Are we supposed to try harder? Are we supposed to attempt more? Are we supposed to do a better job? Are we supposed to look at the bleak circumstance that we're in, like Abraham And try and argue with God and say, see, it's right that I don't have any hope. You can't help me. No. We hear the word of the Lord. We remember his promises. And we put our faith in him. Because loving God is not about trying harder. Loving God is about trusting him. And that's what Genesis 15 verse 6 says is that Abraham trusted the Lord. Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Now we see that we need to trust in this predicted seed. And we are confirmed that this seed will be the one to bless many peoples. But who is he? Who is the one who will crush the serpent? And how many more years do we have to wait before we see him? Well, I'll flip to our next passage. 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you've reached the Psalms, you're too far. It's after Deuteronomy. Keep going. A couple more books. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we fast forwarded away since our last passage. In the meantime, God's promise, surprise, came true. Abraham gave birth to a son, and he was probably 100 years old when he fathered his first child. I can't imagine that. My grandma's 98, my great grandma's 98. I cannot imagine her being a, a, a mom of a newborn. That sounds impossible, but we serve a God of impossibilities, right? Abraham fathers a son named Isaac, who gives birth to a son named Jacob, who gives birth to 12 sons, who later become an entire nation, the nation of Israel. And this all happens in Genesis. And towards the end of Genesis, in chapter 49, there's this little nugget that people often overlook. In Genesis 49.10, you can just write this reference down. Jacob is prophesying over each of his sons and the fates of their people. And Jacob says to Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And right here, God narrows down his promise to this promised seed. It's going to come through Abraham. It's going to come through Israel. But it's going to come through Judah, through this one tribe. So what we're going to see right here is number three, the seed is revealed. The seed is revealed. And after Genesis comes Exodus. Many of you know, this follows the story of God's people. They walk through the desert. God provides. He takes care of them. He protects them. He defends them. He gives them victory. Over and over and over again, God is working on their behalf. He shields them from danger. And this is where we start to think that God's promise has some real traction. Like it actually seems like it's going well for Israel. And so what Israel does is they say, okay, we we want a king. We want the one guy who's going to be the snake crusher. We want the one guy who will fulfill this promise. The people get together and they ask the prophet for a king. And God actually grants them their request, even though they were asking for sinful reasons. And he gives them a man named Saul. Saul. King Saul, many of you have heard of him. If you haven't, that's okay. King Saul is strong. He's tall. He's handsome. He is exactly what you look for and you say, that's our leader. That's our guy. He's the guy that you want to look at and say, he's the winner. He's on our team. He's going to defend us. He's going to represent us. He's the poster boy of what a king should appear like. And yet in time, he was found lacking. He was sinful and he was unrepentant. He didn't care about the Lord's word. Specifically, he was prideful, cowardly, narcissistic, and impatient. And because of his sin, God strips the throne from him. And he says, I'm going to give it to someone else. And that's where we land in 2 Samuel 7. Because God has promised to give the king, to give the kingdom to an unassuming shepherd boy from the tribe of Judah named David. Right where we read in 2 Samuel 7 is David's prime read from verse eight. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, he's God's recounting all that he's done for David. I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people, Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went and I've cut off all of your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. The picture of the promised seed is finally revealed. David's selected by the Lord's providence to rule over this people. He's the one. And he's a good leader. He's a man after God's own heart, scriptures say. He leads them to victory over the offspring of Satan named Goliath. In fact, the description for Goliath's armor uses the same Hebrew word for scales As the description of the snake's skin. Interesting. Seems to be a theme happening here. And when David kills Goliath. He's crushed the head of the serpent. He's done it. He's promised. And God even says I will give you a great name forever. Woohoo. We've done it. We're good. But drop down to verse 12 and we'll continue. 2 Samuel 7 verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you? Wait, what? You're going to die? And there's going to be someone that comes up after David? So David isn't the one? David isn't the, the seed that was promised that would crush the head of the serpent? As many of you know, David sinned tragically right after this. He commits adultery with a woman named Bathsheba and he kills her husband trying to cover it up. And David goes awry. But what's God's response? Does he just now, does he he desperately try and salvage this plan and like put something together because he was supposed to choose David, but then David failed? And so now he, he has to go to plan B? No. In fact, God knows every detail of the future as he shares it with David. Keep reading in verse 12. Here's the promise, verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And now we must recognize that these words are partially fulfilled in David's son his named Solomon. And he rises up and he takes over the throne. And he's he's a pretty good ruler. He does some good things. He's the wisest man who ever lived outside of Jesus. But he also sins. But the real indicator that this isn't just about Solomon is it says the throne shall be established forever. Forever, not for a long time, not for a thousand years, forever, for eternity. But there's no way that a human being could accomplish an eternal throne. It had to be pointing to someone else. There is only one king who rules forever, and though he would come from David, he would be greater than David. The promised seed was predicted, was confirmed, was revealed. And one more. Number four, the seed identified. The seed identified. We're going to flip to one more passage. Keep going in your Bibles to Micah. Micah. This is a small book. If you hit Isaiah, keep going a little bit more. If you hit Jeremiah, keep going a little bit more. If you hit Ezekiel, keep going a little bit more. Flip through, flip through. If you need some help, table of contents, front page. Good tip. On my Bible, it's page 779. Maybe it's on the same years, but Micah chapter 5. No, Micah is taking place at the end of... No, it fits in your Bible at almost the end of the Old Testament. It's still taking place about 700 B.C., So there's still, as we know now, 700 years approximately before Jesus would come. So this is prophetic. What we see as we turn to read the fifth chapter of Micah is a prophecy that continues to hone in, to zoom in, to narrow down onto this one seed, onto this one person, on the one man who would deliver the people from their bondage. It's my prayer tonight that as we just look at these different passages, you are opening these for yourselves, that you are seeing how God is working and how that should encourage us, that when our lives seem bleak or seems like God's promise is not being fulfilled or things are not panning out the way they're supposed to, to not lose heart, that God is working. God is stringing all of these things together. And all of God's word fits together far more intricately than any of us could imagine. So that's what we're entering into. Micah chapter 5, look at verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, this small little tribe within Judah, shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel. He shall be born, and yet his coming forth is from of old From ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up. God shall give this people up. Until the time. When she who is in labor. Has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers. Shall return to the people of Israel. They shall be united. And he shall stand. And shepherd his flock. In the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great. To the ends of the earth. And he, this man, shall be their peace. From a little town called Bethlehem shall come one who is supposed to rule over Israel. And he will be the ancient of days, meaning existing for all time. And he will descend from heaven not as an angel of light clothed in splendor, but as a little baby born in a manger of a poor young girl. And this seed shall stand and watch over and shepherd and care for his flock, not according to the weak and flimsy and dying strength of man, but as the verse says, according to the strength of God. And they, his people, shall live securely because he shall be the prince of peace. He shall be their peace. How shall he be our peace? By reconciling us to the one that we have wronged. To the God that we have offended. And I alluded to this earlier, but when God killed an animal in the garden to cover his people with its skin, he was pointing to this moment. The moment when Christ would be led like a lamb to the slaughter, to be put to death wrongly and shamefully for you, for me. This lamb removed his glory his righteousness, his very skin, so that you may be clothed in it and covered by him? Do you recognize that he became a curse so that you might become a child? Student, this is the one who was spoken of in Genesis 3. The serpent crushed the heel of the promised seed, killing him with a shameful death on the cross. But the seed crushed the head of the serpent, when he rose three days later and he lives, ascended to glory and he rules in heaven, the conqueror. And this Jesus Christ, who the living picture of the shadow that was foretold in Genesis, seen imperfectly in David, is alive and he is powerful. And he has fulfilled Genesis 15, the promise to Abraham that through this one man all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. How? The same way that Abraham was blessed. By believing the Lord. And it was counted to him as righteousness. So student, when you look to the Lord, when you think of the Lord's work that happened for you, whether you or not you want to believe it, it happened. When you look to that work and you say, God, I believe in that When I stand before you, that is my hope, that is my plea. And that is enough that Jesus Christ died and he died for me. When we do that, that is righteousness. When we believe the word of the Lord, it is counted to us as righteousness. The way of salvation has always been the same. Do you see that? In Genesis 15 and in 2023, the way of salvation is the same to believe in the Lord. You don't have to have every answer figured out, every doctrine understood. You just must know that you are a great sinner and yet you have a great savior. And that is the news that we hope for. That is the simple truth, the simple gospel, is that all we have to do is look at the one who was pierced on our behalf and believe that he died for us and we are joined with him. And that is why... We spend time on a Wednesday night to focus on the work of God throughout history because it affects you and me because we are now called into that story. That's the amazing thing. It wasn't just a story back then, but you are part of this story, whether you want to be or not today, right now. And you have an invitation even tonight to hear God's word and to receive it and to join The work that God is doing through the story of redemption. And one day in heaven, you look at the Lord and you'll see it all. And that will be a glorious day. And I hope, I pray that I see each and every one of you there with me. Let's pray. Lord, we need you, God.